electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Last Call, forget the Fed. We're going to tell you what's happening tomorrow that could be even more important for your money. Elon Musk sounding off on Twitter. It was like Pravda, basically. Um, you know, it's a state publication is the way to think of old Twitter. It's a state publication. But will advertisers now come back? The government trying to block a major airline merger, what it means for the cost of your next flight. We broke. One of the formerly hottest companies in America reportedly going bankrupt. And trick-or-treat, not so sweet. The lowdown on high prices hitting the candy aisle. All that and much more across this Halloween hour. We are more treats than tricks. And last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon at West. I'm Brian Sullivan, everybody. We've got a huge show for you tonight, including a big debate over the future of X, formerly known as Twitter. But first up, a major development and a story that we have been following closely here on Last Call. It involves the future of the realtor payment model and maybe the future of real estate itself. A huge class action lawsuit verdict just came down in Missouri. CNBC's Robert Frank is here with it and what it means. Well, Brian, you guys have been on this. Last Call has been on this story from the very beginning. And the brokers I talked to tonight calling it, quote, an earthquake in the real estate industry. That's because a jury in Kansas City found that the National Association of Realtors and several real estate companies conspired to drive up broker commission. The homeowners who filed suit were awarded $1.8 billion with a B in damages. That award could be tripled to over $5 billion under antitrust law. At issue here was the requirement that the seller's agent pay the buyer brokers. The plaintiffs argued that that practice artificially raises the price of selling and buying a home. The NAR is saying the fee split, quote, is not a requirement. They say they're going to appeal. Meanwhile, shares of Redfin, Compass, and other companies down today on a new lawsuit filed right after this ruling against seven other brokerage firms for the very same practice. Americans spent $85 billion on broker fees in 2020. Brian, in other developed countries, brokerage fees are 2% or less. In the U.S., we all know it's that magic 6%. We'll see whether that 6% number changes after this ruling and after these other lawsuits make their way through the courts. Big deal. And have a feeling we may see you on it uh, more tomorrow. Robert Frank, thank you very much. All right, so what does the ruling mean for the industry at large and maybe what you pay for a home? Where do we go from here? Joining us now on set is Bess Friedman. She is the CEO of Brown Harris Stevens and a member of the National Association of Realtors and Michael Ketchmark, the lead attorney of that lawsuit representing 500,000 homeowners in Missouri. Bess and Michael, thank you for joining us here. Uh, first to you, uh, Michael, what, what, what is big settlement here? 1.8 or verdict, I should say, 1.8 billion dollars. First up, where does that money go? Is, is money going to be kicked back to people who bought homes or where? Sure. I mean, we view it as a day of accountability. And I told the jury, 
This case is simple. It comes down to premises I learned when I was in kindergarten. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, you give it back. The money will be returned to the homeowners that were the victims of this rigged system. It's been going on in our country for about 100 years, and it stops today. And, and we're going to hold these um, th these corporate real estate companies and National Association of Realtors accountable for their conduct. And I understand you are ready or have already filed more lawsuits. Yeah, the day that the, the minute that that verdict was was came in, we we filed the lawsuit against the National Association of Realtors and these other large corporate real estate companies to bring the same relief nationwide. And we expect the damages damages in those cases to be in excess of one hundred billion dollars. And look, we are wasting right now about $50 billion a year in wealth that's being taken out of the pockets of homeowners and transferred over to these corporate machines that have taken over real estate. And it's got to stop. Corporate. The National Association of Realtors takes in almost a quarter of a billion dollars in fees from local real estate agents because they have a stranglehold on the market. And, and that's OK, Michael, but best, that, that's that's the NA. He's talking about the NAR, National Association of Realtors, which you are a member. Yep. But. You know, are you a corporate machine? No, we are not. And I can't comment on the lawsuit because it was in Missouri, so I'm not going to talk about that. But what I can say is that the majority of all real estate transactions are done with two agents, a buyer's agent and a seller's agent. And what is being said, I think, is completely untrue. It takes away from the fact that the buyer's agent adds incredible value to the transaction. And so I think the narrative out there, the Wall Street Journal had an article where they referred to NAR as a cartel. It's ridiculous. And I think there's hardworking agents who are out there representing buyers every day. And this totally takes away from that. And I think it's unfortunate. It's the wrong narrative because we work together. It's cooperation. You get the best price when everybody works together. And I'm sure, best that there's people that obviously you're selling a home. You'd like to pay as little as you could. I mean, everybody wants to pay as little as they can for everything across whatever the asset class is. That's for right. most people, including myself, I will never buy anything more expensive than my home. This is the most important and complex financial that's transaction right. that most of us will 100%. ever, ever go through. That's right. And that's why, you know, you, you have someone, if you're selling your home, you hire someone to represent you. They're your fiduciary. And also buyers want somebody to represent them, to talk to them about the pros and the cons, the neighborhood, you know, their financing, everything. Yeah. So you want to have two people, just like you would in a divorce, you want to have two people on the side of the transaction. It's the well, same. hopefully this is more of a marriage <laughs> than a divorce. Bez. But I, it can be a divorce. You know? so, so, Michael, is your beef with the, 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 the NAR? Is it with the compensation structure? Is do you think that, and we've talked before, that there shouldn't be a buyer's agent, or if they do, the buyer's agent should not be paid by the seller because that may be the conflict, and maybe if you're a buyer, you actually pay your buyer's right. agent. We got nothing against buyer's agents. I think they're awesome. But who the person they should pay for is the person they're working for. With this member of the National Association of Realtors, she just gave away the case. She said, you have competitors who are working together. They're colluding together to fix the prices at 6%. I mean, that's what's happening. That's what the jury heard two weeks of evidence of. We revealed the documents. We revealed the videotapes. We revealed all of the emails. And, and the, the CEO of, of, of the NAR testified at trial and took the stand, and we exposed him for what he is. It is a cartel. It's a cartel. It is that not is a cartel. I really I take offense that at that. It is not a cartel. Well, I'm, I'm sure you do. And I take offense at the fact well, that the NAR— Listen, in Brooklyn, for 
for a long time there was no co-broking. And you know the, what that the, does? A disservice to the consumer. What you're saying is really why, offensive. Why in the United and States I take, of America are commissions It is two not to a cartel. Times. I'm just telling you it is not a cartel. Can you answer this question for me? Yes. Why are the commissions in the United States two to three times higher than the rest of the industrial Listen, all, com- all commissions are negotiable. Own, you can negotiate own. them at any time. There's you nothing written in stone. The, the, the jury heard videotape evidence that they negotiate from 6%, but they only go up. The jury heard evidence of, they saw cartoons that were put out there where your, that your CEO sat there and watched where homeowners face. My CEO. But, Wait, they're, Michael, they're, he's not, I, the NAR is a, is a trade group that they pay fees into. I, I just, you do I, not work for no, the NAR. I, I, just, you, you feel, I thought she was a but spokesman. Brian, what I, I have to say, hold on a second. I'm stopping okay. you for a second. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me clear this up because to be fair, Michael thought you, you he must not no. have heard your intro. Yes. He he thought you not, actually worked or were a spokesman for no. the internet. Michael, this is best for you. Then I apologize. She is, okay. I apologize. She is, yeah, thank you. I By the way, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I don't know. I'm defending a lot of real estate professionals. Bess is the CEO of one of the largest real estate firms in the New York Privately area. Privately and, 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 and Connecticut, and my, New Jersey, Miami, and Miami, Miami, and Palm Beach. But I just want to say. you do pay fees to the NAR. You are a member of the NAR. But I just want to say this, that everyone wants to put the client's interest first. We all work together and focus on trying to do what is the right thing. And I think that this sort of implies that agents aren't doing that. And I think this narrative is very damaging. That and also, I think, again, that the television, these these TVs like Million Dollar Listing or whatever they are, they portray agents as unprofessional when I can tell you these are hardworking people that are feeding their families. So I take big offense at all of this. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I love real estate agents. And we throughout the trial, we had real estate agents, buyers agents and sellers agents sitting on our side of the courtroom. I've been flooded with hundreds of phone calls from across the country from real estate agents who are thanking us. The real estate agents do not well, like what the NAR has done. They do not like the fact that within 24 hours of listing a home or passing out a flyer at a church or a ball game, they have to put it into the MLS. And Beth, I think that that if you and I could sit down and have a conversation, you would realize I am not against your organization or your real estate agents. I'm trying to free you of the grip that the NAR has over you. And and I truly believe that 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 companies like you will thrive in the free market and the fair market. And what's happened is the NAR is forcing your realtors to give them $150 each to use this or Kane system that's designed to, to, to stop. It doesn't seem like a lot of money, $150 a year? $150 a year times 1.5 million members is $240 million a year. Well, that, but that Michael, so the, yes, the that go, to the NAR that goes to that, but $150 per year per person, uh, I understand for some it may make a difference. Is there a benefit to being on that MLS that would be more than worth that $150 million? I don't know if that was at the crux of the case. Obviously, I it was is. not in the courtroom. Yeah, the crux of the case is that that what the NAR has done, they were terrified when the Internet came along and then they used to have their books that they would keep the information hidden. They actually called it that was called their sacred data during the trial. And the only way you can get on the MLS is if you pay this money to the NAR and you become a member of that organization. What we want to do is we want to free it so Beth and her agents can work in the free market so they can work for buyers in the free market. I love real estate agents. I mean, I've used a buyer's agent for my own house. I would do it again. But but what I'm not going to do as a homeowner is force people to pay money and fix prices. I assume, Beth, that you would never fix prices. Can I just say one thing is that the buyer is going to pay for it, whether it's in the price or whether they pay their agent. So in a listing agreement, the commission is worked into it so that the listing agent and the buyer's agent get paid. So you can just say, okay, we're going to pay the listing agent X, Y, Z, but then the buyer's agent is going to have to get paid from the buyer. So the buyer's going to pay for it either way. So I don't, I mean, it's however you want to slice it.
Welcome to America. What's wrong with having your own person pay? I love transparency. Look, Revenue is changing the rules as of January 1 to make it more transparent so that when sellers sell their homes, they are going to pay the buyer's agent directly. I love transparency. We want consumer confidence. I'm very supportive of that. Sellers have to pay the buyer's agent? Look, I'm a huge fan of football. I'm a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm from the home of the Kansas City Chiefs. When, When an opposing team comes in town, we do not pay their coach. Name one other industry in this country, Beth. I that just disagree with you. Everybody's that, working in the best interest of trying it, to so, do the okay. right thing. It's a good, guys, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a good, let's, hold on. We have a very short amount of time left, but I, I do want to kind of get to the crux. Is there a scenario, Beth, and I know there's a lot of realtors out there that are nervous right now. Yes. Because this is how they pay their own mortgage. That's right. It, but is there a scenario, and I'm going to ask you to be a little optimistic here, uh, is there a chance where, where the best realtors under this plan could make more money Mm-hmm. Because as opposed to splitting five or six percent, they themselves could simply charge four to five percent and then don't have to worry about the other side. I, I don't know. I mean, we would have to see. It should never be about the commission. It should be how can I serve my client's interests the best? And participation from the brokerage community is the best way to do that, Brian. When you have a listing, you want every agent, every buyer's agent to know about it and bring their qualified buyers. And you want to share it with them. Why? It's in the best interest of your seller, always. And that's what he misses, what he's talking about. No, he's I don't he's totally dismissing that. And that's what we I always think about every day. What is in the best do interest you wor- of the Michael, client? do you and I'll let final word, but you worry there could be a scenario where, let's say that, and by the way, this, nothing, and I want to be clear to our audience, Michael, and if I say something incorrectly, please do correct me. Uh, like I said, I have a law degree, but I'm not an attorney. Under this, under this verdict, nothing about the commission structure is changing. However, the Department of Justice is poking around, and by winning this case, could make it perhaps more likely that the federal government itself steps in and mandates the change. So as I understand it right now, nothing officially changes. There is the settlement. It'll go back to some homeowners. But as it is right now, unless the DOJ does something from D.C., the commission structure stands. Yes or no? No, because as part of this lawsuit, we, we have a request for injunctive relief. And a request. We'll be oh, a request. It hasn't been right. granted, and, though. And, 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 but the second thing is that the, the lawyer from the Department of Justice was there watching our opening statement. The day the, mm. the, the minute the verdict came in today, I was on the phone with the Department of Justice and their antitrust division. The reason they were involved in this, what's happening in our country is wrong. And, and, and they're going to bring it to a stop, and we're going to bring it to a stop. And if we don't, we will continue to go in a mass billion-dollar verdicts, and eventually the jury system will work, and this will stop. And it will be in the best interest of homeowners. It will be the best interest of agents. It will be the best interest of, of Americans with their single largest asset. It's time that these corporations get their hands out of the homeowners' pockets. Yeah. Well, um, Michael, we are going to let we, – listen, we can do this for an hour. We could do this for an hour. This is a hot topic. It's uh, To your point, Michael, whatever you think of them, there's a million and a half. Realtors out there that are that are very nervous tonight, but Michael, we do appreciate you coming on. You laid it Beth, out. I apologize. I thought you were the NAR. I understand that you're not. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. Call me offline anytime. I'm interested in your perspective. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. Stay uh, safe. I, I have Happy to Halloween. Say, this, yeah. is the, this is the nice to have a Midwesterner on. Like he's like, I really apologize <laughs> sincerely. I'll bite. Please call me. I'm so sorry. It's Midwest nice, like Michael. It. So even as a lawyer, we appreciate it, Michael. Thank you yeah, very much. Come to thank you. There you go. And the whole Chiefs thing. Move on. Uh, Best, we're going to see you in. A few minutes. We actually, speaking of real estate, have a very cool segment coming up. Best thank you. All right, meantime, 
Let's get and see how your money did today. The Dow S&P and the Nasdaq all higher. Not big gains like we saw yesterday, but still ticked a little bit higher. Inside the market, your stud and dud du jour, the biggest winner of the day. Arista Network, semiconductor company up 14%. Bullish note from Morgan Stanley saying it'll profit off the, you guessed it, AI boom. The biggest decliner is VF Corp down 14%. They own North Face, Vans, and others. Worst day since the 1980s. Take a quick check on futures. See how things are shaping up. Slightly lower right now. All right, up next. Forget the Fed. What else is happening in D.C. that may have a bigger impact on your money? Rick Santelli, the professor, is here to explain. Plus, Elon Musk slamming the old Twitter regime. You have to hear what he has to say. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Tomorrow could be one of the most important days for investors this year because there are two things happening on the same day. The Fed is meeting and there's a major announcement by the U.S. Treasury. Now, the Fed is easy to understand. Will it or won't it raise borrowing costs? And what will it say about the future of interest rates? But the Treasury story is more nuanced. And we're going to call this our WBI, wonky but important. In a nutshell, tomorrow at 8.30 a.m. Eastern, the Treasury will announce how much and what kind of debt will be issuing in the months ahead, because our national debt and the budget deficit are exploding higher. All of Wall Street is watching how much money our government may actually need and specifically what kind of debt it will issue to pay the bills. Remember, the bond market basically got punched in the face back in July when Treasury said it would need to borrow just over one trillion dollars. The estimate for tomorrow a bit lower at, quote, only air quotes, seven hundred and seventy six billion But that is still a massive amount of new debt hitting the market and more debt could push prices down and thus send borrowing costs via yields up yet again. It is no doubt a complex and complicated topic. So who better to lay it out in a way you can understand than Professor Rick Santelli. Rick, welcome. Great to have you on Last Call. Okay, explain what it is and why it matters. Well, consider this, Brian. How many times have you heard politicians say no matter what? We're not cutting Social Security. We're not cutting Medicare. We're not cutting. Well, this has everything to do with those comments. And what does it have to do with them? It makes them meaningless. It makes them a bit of a fib. And I'll tell you why. Because if we continue at this pace of issuance of debt, and you look at the outstanding debt, over time, if interest rates just stay here, Brian, or go higher, The cost to service the debt is going to keep going up. And right now, you're talking about, let's say, 650 to 680 billion to service our debt. But in a short period of time, that number is going to explode towards a trillion plus. And it's going to take up all of the discretionary spending. So what do you do then? You have to cut. You have to cut something. And that's the lie that politicians say. And the math does not lie. And if we consider what you talked about when you set this piece up, that at the end of July, interest rates exploded. And I'll tell you why. It's easy. And you laid it out. $1 trillion in issuance, $2 trillion in a budget deficit, and 
Fitch downgraded us for exactly the reasons I'm discussing. And that all hit between July 31st Mm -hmm. and August 1st. So let's look at some charts. Two-year, moved roughly 40 basis points. But 10-year and 30-year moved 100 basis points. So when you hear the experts and the analysts say that the main reason we've seen this wild ride in the long maturity treasuries is because the economy is just performing so much better than anyone anticipated. Well, maybe a strong labor market is part of the reason, but the bulk Mm -hmm. of the reason is debt, 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 and trying to service the debt. And where does that money end up coming from? It's amazing. It doesn't get more attention sort of in the non-business media. Anyway, Rick, speaking of the Treasury Department, Legendary billionaire investor Stanley Druckenmiller speaking out recently and listen to what he had to say about Janet Yellen and the job he thinks she is doing. Janet Yellen, I guess because political myopia, whatever, um, was issuing two years at 15 basis points when she could have issued 10 years at 70 basis points. I literally think if you go back to Alexander Hamilton, it was the biggest blunder in the history of the Treasury, and I have no idea why she has not been called out on this. She has no right to still be in that job. Basically saying that she should be relieved of her duties. Rick, your reaction? Well, listen, I don't know why we didn't issue more longer dated debt. I'm not sure who's responsible, but his comments are spot on. Now, I've heard some say, well, maybe we should have issued 50 and 100 year debt. No because there isn't enough liquidity, because there's not a lot of outstanding 50 and 100 year securities. But there's plenty of 10s and 30s. And even if the dealer community, which was discussed on CNBC today, is more reticent to move longer dated Mm -hmm. paper than shorter dated paper, what we're really arguing about is cost, is price. And that's what Stan was basically saying. Sure, you might have had to pay up a little bit to issue it, but in hindsight, it's like people who refinance from four and a quarter down to two and a half yeah. or three percent. And now looking at seven and a half or eight percent, look at how smart they look. The exact opposite. We're on the other side of that trade, Brian. We floated. Yeah. Okay, and now we're in trouble. Although I got to correct you, my man, because the difference with the housing analogy is that this time they're spending other people's money, <laughs> not their own. Yeah. Right. You got that right. <laughs> That's uh, R- true. <laughs> Rick, Rick Santelli. Last call. We appreciate it, Rick. Th- thank you. All right, well, you're going to hear more from the aforementioned Stanley Druckenmiller tomorrow morning. He is going to join the Squawk Box gang, 7 a.m. hour. Don't miss his thoughts on how the Treasury Department maybe should change course. Again, Stanley Druckenmiller live on Squawk, 7 a.m. tomorrow. All right, still ahead on this fine program as Elon Musk tries to build a super app. He's accusing the old Twitter of basically being an arm of government censorship. Kevin O'Leary and Omid Malik will join us for a lively discussion on that and more next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. the last call and you got to listen to this in an interview with joe rogan elon musk slamming twitter's previous executives the degree to which twitter was simply um an arm of the government was not well understood by the public 
It's been a rocky road for Twitter since Musk bought it a year ago and has renamed it X. According to data from Sensor Tower, X's global app downloads have nosedived over the past year. Similar trend with usage and average time spent on the app. Advertisers also leaving. Reuters reporting that monthly U.S. ad revenue at X has dropped massively nearly every month. So where does X, which punches above its weight in things like the media, us, go from here? Let's talk about it with our A-list panel. O'Leary Ventures chair and Shark Tank's Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary and 1789 Capital founder and president Omid Malachi is one of the investors backing new media projects on X and is bullish on its future. Gentlemen, both, thank you for joining us. I know, Kevin, you've been very bullish on the Facebook meta Instagram creation called Threads. I've been posting there a little bit as of lately. It's kind of it's a little bit lonely there yet. They claim to have 100 million users. Are you leaving X or are you just trying to split your business to both? No, I'm very, very agnostic. You know, I've got 40 companies. We aggregate about two, two and a half million a month worth of spending. We also do remnant cable. We do network. We do everything. And so we only care about customer acquisition costs and ROAS, return on advertising spend. We love every single platform and we're very promiscuous. We'll just move from one to the other every Tuesday morning. So I don't really care at all. If I can get the lowest cost, the path of least resistance, I spend my millions there. Right now we're not spending anything on Twitter. It's yeah. the only platform that we're looking at now because, you know, once you get past 8 million followers of your own, and I enjoy that, I'm my own network, so I can actually sell my own time, my own network. And I work with many, many other influencers, so we share our data. Twitter is shrinking right now. But I want to say right out of the gate, I'm a huge Elon fan. I think he'll fix it. But I'm not spending any money there. I'm getting zero return there. I mean, so why oh, would I put dollars there? Yeah, there's so much. By the way, I, I've seen charts. People can make a chart that represents anything I call it chart crime, right? You can make a chart that looks like the terrible, but it's actually a minor, a minor move, just depending on the y-axis. Uh, is Twitter shrinking that much? It's slowed no. in the last two I mean, weeks. I look oh, at this data weekly. It's uh, slowed. Kevin, it's, the, 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 the growth so, is the, the, the shrink is slowing. Okay, Omid? Yeah, not at all. And I think we just need a bit of context here. What was Twitter pre-Elon? Pre-Elon, Twitter was a government agency. That's raison d'etre was two things, destroying shareholder value and suppressing the constitutional rights of Americans. Let's take the latter for just a second. During COVID, that platform at the behest of the Biden administration uh, and the FBI respectively, suppressed truthful information about Hunter Biden's laptop, and other factual events about COVID, whether cloth masks were effective or whether the vaccine shot would stop spread, you were deplatformed. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Go look at the Twitter files or review Missouri versus Biden or Berenson versus Biden that's making its way up uh, to the Supreme Court. And we'll see that the government used Twitter in order to violate our First Amendment rights. That's horrible. So just alone, if you care about the Constitution, it's an improvement to have Musk there. Let's now talk about the fundamentals for a second, okay? The second part of this. People forget that Twitter peaked at around 60 billion of market cap. And before anyone knew that Musk was interested in buying it, it had dropped 50% to around 30 billion of market cap. They lost over a billion dollars in 2020 and $200 million in 2021, okay? So this was the worst social media outfit out there. It was a dead company. And we'll get into what Musk is going to do to resurrect it. 
but it has nothing to do with what Kevin's talking about. They don't need to be relying on advertising. He's already introduced subscription revenue that's making hundreds of millions of dollars a year to mitigate what he's lost in advertising revenue. And long term, this is going to be the everything app where you're going to get people on there for content, which I've invested in. And secondarily, it's going to be in payments. If you can make this a payment processor, you've changed the game. Can it be, Omid, could it be smaller than it was in terms of just the number of people or (laughs) bots, fake people, right? Just absolute numbers. Could it be smaller, but more profitable? Well, of course, he's reduced operating expenses as well, which is another thing he's done. He's reduced the staff by over 50%. Thousands of those people, nobody knew what they were even doing there. So you're going to reduce operating costs. It doesn't matter what the top line revenue was when it was public. They were Mm -hmm. just bleeding cash and destroying revenue. So here you can make less revenue and be a profitable business. And that's exactly where he's headed. He has 350 million users approximately. Let's imagine even 10% of those started using this as a payments platform once he gets those licenses, which they're indicating will happen by 2024. It's an absolute game changer. You'll match the same revenue, but you'll do it on a profitable basis. That's what I'm betting. Kevin? You bet you're betting that because that's not even proven. If your social media platform, what matters right now is reaching people and shrinking, that doesn't work for you. And it is the only social media platform I know right now that's shrinking. And so at the end of the day, it maybe turns around. Facts are this equity, forget about the debt, the 40 billion plus valuation has been marked down by fidelity by two thirds. Look, I'm not saying Elon can fix it. And I've said already, I'm a huge fan. But this thing is a walking disaster right now. And until I can see how I make money advertising on it, I'm not going to touch it. Why would I? I have so many choices. It's so competitive. The metrics on how you measure the stuff are every 12 hour cycles. So at the end of the day, you put an ad out on Twitter. If you don't get a return on it 12 hours later, you just move somewhere else. The entire market is very, very in flux. Things are changing all the time. I want him to succeed. I'm a huge fan. He's, he's, he's a fantastic entrepreneur. But maybe this one is a howling dog from hell. Is there just a point, though? He just proved my point. He's focused on advertising. I'm not debating that. My entire diatribe is about how he's diversifying away from being solely responsible or relying on advertising. So everything that I'm saying and Kevin's saying can be true. If you move towards subscriptions and payment processing, then you have an entirely different business model. And the points that Kevin are making have no impact on his vision whatsoever. In fact, he's affirmatively tried to move away from that. Relying solely on advertising dollars is a fool's errand in this environment. You think there's a group of people, Omid, that just left or would leave Twitter slash X because they just don't like Elon's views. They just, you know, it's like they used to buy a Tesla. Now they won't because of Elon. Okay, but you and I have had this conversation before. I'm betting that that doesn't matter because so then the other half of the country. And again, we've we've quantified this. The 30 percent of GDP that voted for Donald Trump is still seven trillion dollars. You could alienate half the country and still have a very profitable business if it's based on subs and payment processing fees. Think about that. Wouldn't a bank want to have half the country as their customer? I'm not proposing he needs to do that. I'm simply describing that in a worst case scenario, you still have a great business on your hands. Except, Omid, I I, I pray that we don't ever have a day where half of America banks with the same bank. 
You know, totally. <laughs> but by the way, we're headed in that direction when you see some of the bank failures and you only have four systemically dangerous banks control all the deposits. So that's a totally separate matter and another scary one, to your point. We'll, we'll, we'll get you back on for that segment. But, you know, Kevin, listen, again, threads, when it came out, when it came out, you know, it's like a, half the Internet was like, well, Twitter's dead. Good riddance, Twitter. Threads is going to kill Twitter in a week, blah, 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 blah. OK, some of the metrics have come down. I've been on threads. I, I post a little bit. I'm trying to post a little bit more. It's, it's been tough to get some traction. Are you seeing any real monetization on threads? I just wonder how much they sort of aggregate the Instagram data with threads and Facebook. No, I have not seen monetization on threads, but it is a growing platform and the outcome's still unknown. It just shows you how competitive social media is now. Now, whether you believe in the payment model and I look, I'm a huge fan of free speech. I'm a huge fan of payment systems, but these are brutally competitive markets. There's no question about that. And at the end of the day, can you make those work for you? Unknown. It's still unknown. And so, look, I wish him the best on this thing, but every day I have to make an economic decision. I spend millions of dollars every month. I'm trying to make the most money I can doing it and aggregate my buys to get my lowest cost of customer acquisition. Yeah, that's it. Right now, that's not Twitter. It could change. Don't know that yet. Well, and, and we'll let it go, guys. But if or when the government, the federal government bans TikTok, which is not impossible, the entire social media landscape will change again. Omid Malik, Kevin O'Leary, gentlemen, both. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Still ahead. We won't make any money. Breaking news on the likely bankruptcy of a former Wall Street darling. Plus, one big tech stock taking a hit right now is the AI hype starting to fade. Some of the headlines you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, the Wall Street Journal reporting that WeWork is planning to file for bankruptcy. It could come as early as next week. The news sending shares plummeting after hours. This is a company that was once called the future of work and valued at nearly $50 billion. Joining us now from one of the reporters who broke the story, and that is Alexander Gladstone. Alexander, great scoop, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, what are you hearing about this possibility? Is it inevitable? I believe it is virtually inevitable. Um, the company, I think, as it's currently capitalized, is unsustainable, and they need to go into Chapter 11 to renegotiate their leases or, or cut a lot of them. Is it fair to call WeWork one of the greatest investor value hits in modern business times. I mean, I, the hype around this company when it was being built up, Adam, the cult of Adam Newman, he got rich. Everyone else got wiped out. It's remarkable. The company was at one point valued at $47 billion. Uh, SoftBank, um, they put in about $12 billion into it, uh, which I expect is gonna be written off. Other investors put in billions as well. Um, so it's a remarkable uh, loss of value. Yeah, and we know that if this happens, it could come as early as next week, you said? Yeah, they yeah. they missed an interest payment on October 2nd, which kicked off a 30-day grace period. Um, they recently got an extension until early next week. And so, you know, it could it could drag on. These This is a very complex process, and there's lots of paperwork that has to be done. Mm -hmm. But I believe it happened as early as next week, and it 
to drag, but it's happening pretty soon, I believe. Yeah, thank you. And potentially, by the way, more empty office space in Manhattan. Hard to believe Adam Newman has gotten a couple hundred million in new financing on his next project from some of the same people. Alexander Gladstone, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, next up, AMD spooking the market on this Halloween night, coming out with a forecast that is a little more sour than Sour Patch Kids. Christina Partsinevlos joining us now with what, don't shake your head. That was good. That was a dad joke. It's yeah, Halloween it was a night. Dad joke, yeah. All right, what's going yeah. on at AMD? Well, as we've seen with a lot of other chip makers this earnings season, stocks are really reacting to company guidance, and AMD's Q4 revenue guidance fell short of expectations. If we were to break down this quarter, though, its client business did uh, well, signaling personal computer recovery. Intel also told us that last week. Data center sales were a little weak. AMD's embedded business also came in weak. It includes programmable chips, and both Lattice Semiconductor and Intel warned of weakness in that particular segment just within uh, today and last week as well, and gaming was in line. But what made AMD's stock reverse course around 5 p.m. Eastern was CEO Lisa Su's comments on its latest AI chip, the MI300, which is launching in September. AMD predicting that its AI graphics processing chip, the GPU, will compete with it, which will compete with NVIDIA, I should say, should bring in $2 billion next year. Tonight was the first time AMD actually committed to a number on those sales, with Sue saying, quote, mm-hmm. This growth would make the MI300 the fastest product to ramp to $1 billion in sales in AMD history. In other words, AMD is very confident that this AI chip will do well in the near term. Help me. What is the difference between the AI chip or the AMD chip and the NVIDIA AI chip? The what AMD is saying is that their chip is going to be much faster. They claim it's going to be 2.4 times faster than NVIDIA's chip. And it's also going to be possibly at a lower selling point, which is a great benefit. Sue was on the call and she said that, you know, when if you have a more powerful chip, you don't need to buy as many other GPU chips. That's better for power. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we talked about that previously, because it's very expensive and will be expensive many years from now for a lot yeah. of these companies to run their system. But the problem with AMD's chip is that NVIDIA's software is more popular. CUDA, more companies. Oh, it's got the halo already. Yes, exactly. Oh, can I ask you, because we got it. What, you have what's, to finish what, up? What did you bring? What is the, well, what's this on is the... a Halloween costume. So if we're done the segment, then I can tell you what my okay, Halloween Okay, show, what is this? Okay, I'm so ner- I'm nervous. Now, I walked I no around the building today. I walked around the building today with this tape to my body, and I was going to save it. And instead, I'm stuck here with you, so I can't go around trick-or-treating. For those, uh, hopefully you can see. Yeast. Yeah, what does yeast do? It makes bread. But what is it? How does it help bread? It's it's the living thing that creates the bread. It what rises. It? Yield rise rising <laughs> yields. Bingo. Wow. You had it in the wrong order. No. Yeah, oh, well, here. Yeah, sorry. Oh, and you're OK. Uh, uh, By the way, you're coming to me like, how did you not I get that? Have, I decided to and you've inverted them. Uh. It's a time at, at college. I went to Virginia Tech VT. I maybe had some adult beverages. I tried to paint VT on my and I painted TV. And I was walking around with TV on my, and people were like, and you know what, it worked, by the way, it worked out. You're an anchor on a a national TV network. How fitting. I'm America's 17th most beloved news anchor. All right, coming up. Wow. How much did Hall of Fame Red Sox pitcher Pedro Martinez sell his lavish Miami mansion for? Best Friedman back with that. Where was that step from? (laughs) 
love that animation. It's like the start of a 90s, early 90s so sitcom. Beautiful. Where's Joey? <laughs> Whoa. All right, it is time now for a new segment on Last Call. And we are calling A-Listed. We're going to give you the inside scoop on Homes, the Rich and Famous tonight. We're taking a look at the sweet digs of three people from the world of sports, Hollywood and business, and... Brown Harris, Stephen C.O. Best Friedman joining us after that fiery debate. Thank you very much. Her firm listed the homes we are about to show you and I think sold them, right? Yeah, well, we represented the buyer, which the buyer's we were the buyer's agent. Not okay. again. Yeah, we're going to get back into that again on, on the first home we're going to talk Fantastic. about. Which, by the way, is a guy well known to our New York area audience, Boston as well. Hall of Fame reliever, pitcher, Pedro Martinez. His Miami home. Yes. So Pedro Martinez's home, six bedrooms, seven bathrooms, a beautiful pool. It's on the North Miami waterfront, about 5,000 square feet, sold for a little over $5 million. But great location in a gated mm. community um, near the Miami Design District in Ball Harbor, those shops. So mm. really... A, a great property, gorgeous, as you can see from the photos, done. Completely. Is that just like super minimalist or was it empty? <laughs> no, it's super. It, it, I mean, I think it's it's showing empty, but gorgeous home, done, kitchen, baths, great closets. It has everything. Okay, next up, let's take a look at Dexter's digs. Okay, Dexter, if you don't know, and I did not know, is the role of actor Michael C. Hall in the famous show, Dexter. He was right. also in Six Feet Under. He That's true. I think he was like a serial killer, but like a good guy serial killer. Anywho, he is selling his New York City apartment, three bedrooms, three baths. What's the intel on this place? I, I, I'm going to say something I can't believe I'm saying. Uh -oh. Four million seems cheap for a three bedroom in Manhattan. Yeah, I can't a, believe I just said that. Oh boy, I love that you said that. Oh. Anyway, it's a classic six in the El Dorado, which is a great one, car, by the way. It's Yes, it is a great car. <laughs> it's also a great building on the Upper West Side on Central Park West. Um, it's those majestic twin towers between 90th and 91st. Mm. But this is a classic six room done, gorgeous detail. Um, Bright it, colors. Yeah, beautiful colors done by the designer, Sarah Bangor, who customized it. It's gorgeous, high ceilings, um, beautiful detail throughout. Uh, and the building is wonderful. It's really a great it is location. If you're on the radio and you can't see it, go, go look online. I mean, it is beautiful if you like. It's like, a, but I kind of feel like I'd be living in a bag of Skittles. <laughs> Because every room was a super bright other color. Yeah, it is. But you can customize it to your liking. You can turn it into a man cave if you want Wait, to. With the co-op board or whatever there would allow us to repaint? Well, you, yes, they would allow you to repaint. You can design it however you want. You can make it a whole room just for sports. Who else if you lives want. in that building? Are you allowed to say? I would like Madonna, Is it like Madonna? Like, no. Zip. I plead the fifth. Madonna, Madonna, I feel like, lives in all those buildings on the Upper West Side and Central Park West. All right, finally. No comment. This is the so See, that's a, that's a good representative. <laughs> all right. So-called mansion that Grey Goose built, built in leafy Greenwich, Connecticut, has to do with Grey Goose vodka. Right. This is the nephew, uh, John Frank. This is a gorgeous, this is um, 19 acres, 18,000 square feet, 10 bedrooms. Wait, this is not even the guy that founded Grey Goose? This he's is the, his he's nephew? The, he's the nephew, but he was involved. He was the chairman. He was very involved with okay, the Okay, I was going to say, if this is just Grey Goose <laughs> passing down to nephews to get that kind of home. It's gorgeous. It's a Georgian-style home. Um, 16 bathrooms, in case you need one. Five. How many bedrooms? Uh, 10 bedrooms. So what's this whole, why do we ever need more bathrooms than bedrooms? I've never been able to figure that out. And like, five half bathrooms. Am I just, <laughs> one plus two equals three? I mean, and five half bathrooms, <laughs> two pools, one for the kids. Of course there's two pools. One for the adults, and 25 car garage. 25 car garage. So 
wonderful, gorgeous estate, stunning, beautiful, not too far from New York City if you work in the city. But this is really a spectacular it home. It is a beautiful. Now, is this for sale or has it? Look this at that is car. for oh sale. Oh, my God. Look at that yeah, car. T- see? You buried the lead. It's gorgeous. showing a car, a bunch of Porsches that, like, I would, uh, whoever owns that, I'll outdrive you any day. But look at that thing. $33.8 million. And it's, it's, it's a stunning home in Greenwich. And it's really something very special. And you got a backup pool. You got a backup pool if the adult it. pool doesn't work. Uh, so. 16 bathrooms. Just <laughs> half, just in case. E- half in each. Beth <laughs> <laughs> Friedman, thank you very much. A listed coming up JetBlue's Spirit Airlines deal hitting turbulence. What could mean for the cost of your next ticket? All right, welcome back to Last Call. Time for a special Halloween RBI because there is something really scary out there right now. It is the cost of Halloween. The National Retail Federation says this year Americans will spend $12.2 billion on Halloween. That's up a billion dollars more than last year and up by $3 billion more from 2019. Yikes. $3.6 billion of that is just on candy alone with the rest going for costumes and other decorations. In all, it is estimated Halloween will run you $108.24 per person. Now that is spooky. And if you're out or heading out, by the way, well, if you're out, you probably don't hear me. But if you're going out, have a great time and don't eat all your kids' candy, as I remind myself. All right, from pricey candy to pricey flights, the Department of Justice looking to block JetBlue's $3.8 billion deal to buy Spirit Airlines, arguing the deal would hurt competition potentially lead to higher fares. While JetBlue says it needs to buy Spirit in order to grow to compete with the larger carriers. Shares of both JetBlue and Spirit plunged more than 10% today. JetBlue hitting a 12-year low, Spirit a three-year low. But if the deal does go through, how could it impact your ticket prices? Let's ask senior airline reporter at the Points Guy, David Slotnick. David, uh, reading your piece, by the way, and I knew, as a United guy, I knew that the big carriers had the majority of the market share. I did not realize just how big the big four really are. That's right. It's 80% of the market that Southwest, uh, Delta, American, United all carry together. Um, you have JetBlue, Spirit, really in the sixth and seventh slot. And, and so I'm not going to ask you to opine on the deal or the potential government action, but do you think JetBlue has a point when they say, if, if we don't get bigger, we're never going to be able to compete, and thus some of these airlines may not be able to survive. I think that both sides here have a point. Uh, JetBlue certainly does with the fact that they need to grow quickly. Um, they're having trouble getting planes, as is everybody in the industry. But, you know, they see this as a way that they could double in size quickly and really become a fierce competitor fairly fast, uh, much faster than they could organically. If they do end up merging... Do you think that would send ticket prices higher or lower? Do we have a way to know? You know, it's hard to tell. Both sides are arguing both ways. I think that what could happen is we could see on some routes where JetBlue and Spirit compete, those lowest prices might end up coming up. However, because the airline is competing at this point with the big four, we might see average fares in the U.S. end up coming down a little bit. So... You know, I think what the judge is going to have to decide is which is a better outcome, the bottom fares going up a little or the average fare coming down a little bit. Yeah, and it, I saw a new airline in Philadelphia Airport the other day, Contour. There's, there's, still, there's still small airlines popping up. Yeah, there are still plenty of small startups and low-cost airlines. Um, you know, there's just nothing really at the scale of either Spirit or JetBlue or the two of them combined together. 
Yeah, pretty interesting. You know, we always hear it's so hard. And then every time you look out your window, there's like the French bee or contour or whatever it might be. David Slotnick, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, folks, that's it for us on Last Call here on a Tuesday, a Halloween Tuesday night. If you're going out, have a great time. Be safe. Have fun with your kids. We didn't. We'll see you tomorrow. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.